being seven years old, uh, there's some things that we've talked about over the years and try to figure out what is the right time uh, to do that for us. I was just thinking back this morning, um, even of just the people that were with us from the beginning, James right here is one of the OGs. He was in the bowling alley days with us, and there are a lot of others you, others of you that I recognize faces that uh, were with us in Oleander, where we, where we started, and uh, the first space that we were in... Um, the bathrooms were actually in the worship space. So like, just picture like the bathrooms right there. And um, I remember one Sunday getting up to, to speak and a toilet was running. And so the entire time I was talking, there's a toilet running in the background, um, made that message a whole lot shorter. Um, but uh, we've talked about things that, you know, just you look at traditional churches that are around for years and years and years that have things like membership. And we've asked the question, when do we think we're ready for that? Uh, there's no biblical mandate to do that, but we do think there's significant value in it and benefit uh, to it. And so we're going to be introducing, starting immediately, partnership. Partnership for us is uh, a formal relationship between us as a church and Christ followers. And it's just a reflection of the organic relationship and community that already exists, uh, that already exists among us. Uh, in the New Testament, Christians are always recognized as belonging to a specific body, a specific uh, church. And so we want you to, to be able to do that, to be a part of the place, call yourself one of the place where you're being formed spiritually and strengthened uh, in the care by the staff and the leaders here at, uh, at Generation. And so here's, uh, here's how we're going to do it. So partnership for us is going to be something that's renewed annually. It's going to be right around our anniversary Sunday every year. And you're going to get a card when you leave and you have a chance to look at it. It tells you what we're asking of you, the expectation of you. Then it also tells you what you can expect, uh, you can, what you can expect from us, and it's something that will that will renew every year. So, like a year from now, you may be like, "That was a terrible idea." You don't have to do anything; just don't re up next year. Uh, if you didn't do what you're supposed to do all year, uh, then we just simply throw your card away and pretend we never knew you. And so, uh, but I want to listen. I want to invite every one of you to do that. Uh, I get it. Some of you are not going to be there. You're not going to be ready. And so, the question is, if I'm not a partner, what does that mean? Uh, well, we've got T-shirts for you. They have scarlet letters, um, and so we'll just have you wear those. No, you're still going to be cared for. You're still going to be loved. Uh, like, you're still welcome to call Generation Home, but partnership is kind of like that, that next level. Uh, it says that not only am I all in in my word, but in my deeds, in my action, that this is the place that is forming me spiritually, and I'm 100% connected and committed to it. And then one of the things that that I've often struggled with is uh, the question of when I stand before God, who as a pastor, who am I going to be uh, accountable for? Like, is it the people that show up at Generation and visit three or four times or uh, that, you know, you know, maybe you come in and you're here for a few months and then you end up going somewhere else and uh, never really put down roots, don't really ever get connected. And so partnership for me helps us identify as a staff, like these are the people that we're going to stand accountable to God for how we led when we, when we stand before him. And so you're going to get a card when you leave. If you're watching online, you can do this also on our website at generationchurch.org backslash partnership. And I want to encourage you and invite everyone to do that. But take that card home, pray about it, talk about it with your spouse and your family over the course of the next week or two. And then if you want to participate, you can turn it in at the, the, the welcome desk. You can fold it up and put it in our, our, our technically our new giving baskets uh, since back in when COVID first started. So we've got here in the lobby, different places around uh, the building. Or if you want to kiss up to me, you can just give it to me personally, and it'll curry you some extra favor. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, I want to 
uh, ask you to prayerfully consider uh, taking that step with us. It's something that's new, and we're going to celebrate on March 16th with with what we're calling uh, Partnership Family Table. That's where we're all going to come together. We're going to bring food. We're going to eat together, and we're going to celebrate this step together. Uh, We're starting, uh, Jake talked about Devoted. We're going to start a new series for the course of the next, it'll probably be at least the next three months. It'll end up going a little bit longer than that. But we're talking about the apostles' teaching. And so we're going to be in the book of, of Romans, if you have a Bible. If not, it'll be up on the, up on the screen. And the name of the series is, uh, is Unashamed. Uh, just think for a minute about some things that, that you are not ashamed of, things that you're unashamed of. Uh, for some of us, it's our, our kids, like as parents, we celebrate our kids, we celebrate what they're doing, and you know, you'll hear people tell the same story five times, like you hear it so much, you could tell the story about their kid, and you're like, I don't really care about it, but they do, and if you're a parent like me, there are a number of things that I talk about about my kids, and I don't really care if you don't want to hear about it, if you don't want to hear about it, leave, like I'm going to talk about them, like I'm unashamed of some of the accomplishments and some of the things that they, that they do, I'm unashamed of who they are, or maybe it's some of, the, some of your own personal accomplishments, I ran my first marathon about four years ago, and I'm unashamed to tell everybody about it. Uh, I got a t-shirt for running it and also a medal. And the week after I ran the marathon, I was with some of my pastor buddies, and I was wearing the marathon t-shirt. And the one guy was like, man, you're really proud of that accomplishment, aren't you? And I was like, if I didn't think it was too much, I'd have worn the medal too. Like, I, everybody needs to know what I just did. Like, I'm unashamed of it. Like, give me the bumper sticker. Give me the t-shirt. Give me the medal. I wanted to get a tattoo that said I ran 26.2 miles. And, and so there are things like that, that that we're unashamed of. Or maybe your, your sports allegiance. I know Kim's in here, Wolfpack. I don't care if they lost yesterday. You will not see a bigger Wolfpack fan. It doesn't matter if they win, if they lose. Uh, if they lose a heartbreaker, I'm going to see her sometime in the next few days sporting that Wolfpack red because she is all in on the Wolfpack no matter what. And she's unashamed. And if you don't like it, you can deal with it or you can go find a new friend. Like, and so some of us with our sports teams, like that's how we are. And so Paul says about the gospel in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm unashamed of the gospel of Jesus. That no matter what anyone else thinks, no matter what anyone else says, no matter what happens to me, I'm unwavering in my commitment to the gospel and my belief that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And you're going to see this is the, the, the foundation, Romans 1, 16 and 17, which we're going to talk about a little bit, is the foundation of the entire book of Romans. And so he props up the gospel And then he's going to spend the better part of the next 16 chapters taking the gospel like it's a wet sponge and literally wringing every possible ounce of truth and revelation out of the gospel that he can for you and I. Not only is the gospel for people who are far from God, but the gospel is for those of us that have been following God for 5, 10, 20 years. There are truths about the gospel that we don't understand, and Paul is going to take us on this journey, and he's going to show us that the gospel is something he's unashamed of. The gospel is something every one of us needs. And he's going to take this book, and in the first 11 chapters about the gospel, he's just going to simply tell us things to believe. Reminds me of the Ephesians series we did a couple of years ago called Be to Live. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, if you've ever read it, we're not told to do anything. We're just told to believe and know some stuff. And then chapters four, five, and six is when Paul starts to say, okay, now in light of what you know, in light of what you believe, 
This is how you act. That's where like uh, Ephesians 5, passages about marriage. Ephesians 6, passages about parenting. Ephesians 4, passages about how we interact with each other. All of those are built on the foundation of what he's told us to believe about who we are in Christ for the first three chapters. And so Romans is very similar. First 11 chapters, it's what we should believe. And then chapters 12 through 16, in light of what you know, in light of what you believe, this is now how we live. And I think that's where Christianity, we, we oftentimes get it wrong. We start with behavior. When you start with behavior, you wind up with legalism. When you start with belief, you wind up with transformation, right? And so Paul says, before I start to tell you what to do, let me first of all tell you who you are. Let me tell you what, you, what to believe. Let me make the case that the gospel is for everyone. And then once I do that, then let's talk about the rest of the book. Let's talk about how we live. And so Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians who made up the church of Rome. Rome was the largest, most powerful and prominent Gentile city in the world. And the church of Rome was growing and flourishing, and it was made up largely of converted Gentiles. So in the, in the first century, the, the, early, the early days of, uh, of the church, you, pr you pretty much had all of the population broken down into two groups. You had Jews and you had Gentiles. Jews were descendants of Abraham, God's chosen people. Gentiles were everybody else. So the majority of us in here are is likely mostly a Gentile room. There may be a few of us who are, uh, have Jewish descent, uh, descent, but most of us, we're, we're Gentiles. And so Paul is a, was known to be the apostle to the Gentiles. The church in Rome was made up largely of converted Gentiles, but the church was founded by Jewish converts, men who were converted likely on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. If you remember that, they, they all came together. They heard the gospel in their own language. It's a bunch of Jews that came together to celebrate Pentecost. And when that happened, this group, likely this group of Roman Christians who were there that had been converted there, they left and they went back to Rome. And when they got back to their home in Rome, they said, we need to be together. We need to, we need to gather and so whether they knew what they were starting was a church or not, they began to gather with other people who were followers of Jesus as people were being converted to the way, the, following, the way of following Jesus as, as that was happening. They were being added to this church. And so this church was growing and it was flourishing. They were advancing the kingdom. They were proclaiming the message of the good news. And an interesting fact about the church of Rome the, the only major church in the Roman Empire that was not started by one of the apostles was the church in Rome, um, which is interesting because it's a reminder that you don't have to be an apostle. You don't have to be an ordained minister. You don't have to be, you don't have to go to seminary in order to share the gospel or to lead a gathering of people in pursuit of Jesus. That's what was happening in the first century in the church at Rome and God was blessing it, and it was flourishing. So Paul is writing to this church, knowing that there, there are a lot of things that they didn't know, a lot of the, the teaching of Jesus through the apostles, a lot of things they didn't know. And so he's writing to them in order to tell them and educate them and prop up their belief in all of the things that they have in Christ, that even if they were unaware of it. And so in Romans chapter one, he opens by introducing himself. A lot of times when we write letters, we, we, you know, the body of the letter, and then we conclude by saying who we are. And this, it makes a little more sense the way they did it. Like right from the beginning, he's like, it's, it's me, Paul. So in verse number one, he says, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. 
God promised this good news long ago through the prophets, through his prophets, and in uh, in the Holy Scriptures. So he opens by introducing himself. Now, a little bit about Paul that they would have known that that maybe you you don't know is Paul was a greatly respected Jewish leader. Paul was one of the uh, the Pharisees. In fact, he was on his way to becoming the elite of all the Pharisees. He was a respected leader in the Jewish community. He had a significant amount of influence, and he had all of the fame and fortune that came with the status that he had. Because he was a Pharisee, he was a part of the group that believed it was their job to protect and preserve the law of Moses. The problem with the Pharisees is they fell in love with the law, and they didn't fall in love with God. It's like for you and I today, if this is your goal, you're going to miss out on all that God has for you. This isn't the goal. God is the goal. This is how we learn about God, but the goal is not to grow in knowledge of this. The goal is to grow in our relationship with God. And so because Paul was a Pharisee, he knew this book. He fought to protect this book. And when Jesus showed up and came to start something new and said things like, I came to fulfill the law, the Pharisees were threatened by him. And so they hated Jesus, everything he stood for, and they led the charge to kill him. And after they killed him, There was an all-out assault launched on anyone that was following him, and they tried to kill all of them. And that's where we first hear of Paul, who originally was known as Saul. His his name was later changed uh, to Paul. But when we're first introduced to him, I believe it's Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr, is dying. And uh, as he's dying, it says the people who killed him took their outer garments and they laid them at the feet of, of Saul. Essentially, Saul was the commanding officer, and all of the soldiers under Uh, under his authority, are the ones that carried out the order to kill Stephen. But it was Paul, essentially, was the one that gave the order. And so this is where Paul's origin was, murdering Christians. He was known to, uh, to despise the way of Jesus. He was known to attack and to torture and, and to murder followers of Jesus. And then on the road to Damascus to do uh, more persecution of the church in Acts chapter 9, we're introduced to to uh, the story where Jesus meets him and Jesus converts him. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, it says, He, speaking of Saul, fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Paul gets up, does as the voice of Jesus has told him to do, And from that day forward, his life was forever altered. Instead of persecuting followers of Jesus, he became one of them. Instead of trying to destroy the church, he gave his life to advance it. Now, initially, as you can imagine, it was a a tough sell to Christians. Like, Like, think about it today. If there was someone in our community that was known to persecute what we're doing, and then all of a sudden they showed up here on a Sunday morning, hands raised, eyes closed, like saying, I'm one of you, we would be going time out. I don't know that you are. So the early church struggled to, to receive Paul and to accept him as, as one of their own. They thought that maybe he was a spy or trying to, to get on the end so he could infiltrate from, from within. But over time, as he began to be persecuted for the same faith, they began to, to latch on to him, to embrace him, and to respect him as one of the greatest of all of the apostles. And Paul left behind the authority, the influence, the wealth associated with being the elite among the Pharisees, and traded all of it for the cross. And in Philippians chapter three, Paul said all the things he used to consider valuable, the status he had, the influence, the wealth, all of those things, 
He said he now considers them worthless because of what he's experienced because of Christ. Paul was a man that was consumed by the gospel and he lived his life with a sense of gratitude for the gospel every day. We talk about how the gospel isn't the rear view mirror, it's in the, it's in the windshield, it's not the diving, port, diving board, it's the swimming pool. Paul lived his life every day with the gospel in front of him. That's why he said things like, I die daily, regularly coming back to and reminding himself of what Jesus had done for him and how it changes every day of his life. He never lost sight of who he was or where he would be without the gospel. And then verse three, he clarifies what the good news is about. Because he talks about good news, but I mean, good news could be anything depending on your perspective. Like it's almost March and McDonald's is gonna bring the shamrock shake back. Like for some of us, that's really good news. But is that the good news that he's talking about? No, so he says, let me explain to you the good news I'm talking about. The good news I'm talking about, he says, the good news is about his son, about Jesus. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. Now that reference to King David's family line, that was for the Jewish leaders of the church because for them, he's making a connection between Jesus and fulfilling messianic prophecies. So he's putting that line in there for their benefit. And he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus was always the son of God. Before Jesus died, before he was buried, before he rose again, he was always the son of God. But what removed any doubt was when, was when he emerged from the tomb victorious over sin and death. It's one thing for Jesus to have said that he was the Messiah, for Jesus to have said that he was the son of God. It's a completely other thing for Jesus to emerge from the tomb victorious, removing all doubt. It's like, think, think about football for a second. Like Tom Brady, in my opinion, is, is the GOAT. Anyone agree? Uh, it's okay if you disagree, you're wrong. Like you're bitter. Um, <laughs> But Tom, I mean, when it comes to the greatest of all time, you may argue that he's not the best of all time, but he's the greatest of all time. And along the way, like I would be trying to convince people, man, like when they won their fourth Super Bowl, I'm like, he's, he's, the, he's the GOAT. No, he's not. We won the fifth. He's the GOAT. And so there are times where you're like, you're trying to convince people of his greatness. And then near the end of his career, Tom Brady would just do some things that would remove all doubt. Like when the, the comeback against the Falcons, it was 28 to 6. Game over, Atlanta celebrating in the streets. Like this game is over. The, the owner of the Falcons came down onto the side of the, he was out on the sidelines to watch his team win this championship. And Tom Brady's walking up and down the sidelines, convincing his teammates, don't give up, we still have this. They come back, they tie the game and they win. And it's like, man, that removed any doubt. But if you still had some doubt, he left Bill Belichick, he left New England, he went to Tampa. And he won a Super Bowl there. And it's like, yeah, there's no doubt. But even if you had a little bit of doubt left, his final game, they were down 27 to three. Again, any other team would have just packed it up and mailed it in. But they came back, they tied the game at 27. If it weren't for their terrible defense, they'd probably be playing next weekend again. But I mean, you see all of that and you go, you cannot dispute the evidence that he's the GOAT. And for the disciples, they questioned the crowds. They questioned, like, is Jesus really all of the things that he says he is? And the disciples, when Jesus died and when he was in the, was in the tomb, they were, they were denying him. They were betraying him. They were deserting him. But then he emerges from the tomb victorious. And what happens to these cowards? These guys who weren't sure what they believe when, with the evidence in hand, these cowards 
were men who boldly stood and were impaled for their faith. They were crucified. They were thrown into vats of boiling oil, all for the sake of the gospel because of the person and the work of Jesus. That this is the gospel that was not only worth living for, but it was worth dying for. And Paul says, this is the guy. Like this is Jesus, the the one that emerged from the tomb victorious. Then he starts to to talk to them on a personal level in verse eight. He says, let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. So Paul had not been to Rome. He'd only heard about what God was doing through them. Uh, Most of the churches Paul wrote to are churches that he started. But Romans gives us a glimpse into Paul's heart for the gospel, that it doesn't matter whether or not he started it, he's heard about it, and he celebrates it. Like, think about that in a day with the, you, you couldn't text, couldn't call, no media, no social media. And Paul, and, and Paul says not only him, but everyone all over the world is hearing about what is happening in the church at Rome. And he says, God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night, I bring you and your needs in prayer uh, to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about his son. Verse 10, one of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so that I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. He says, I long to to come and see you. I want to see with my eyes what I've only heard about. He says, I want to be there. I want to teach you. I want to give you some spiritual gift. I I want to build you up. He says, but I also want to encourage you, and I want you to encourage me. He's talking about mutual encouragements. Essentially, he's saying to the Roman church, like, it's okay to be discouraged. Like, following Jesus isn't easy. I would actually argue if you've been following Jesus for any length of time and you say that all of following Jesus has always been easy, that you're probably, you're either not following Jesus very closely or you're following a version of Jesus that isn't real. Because he promised us we would experience hardships. He told us it was going to be difficult. He said, hey, just so you know, what you're signing up for is the way of the cross. And Paul says, I want to come so that we can encourage one another because I know this road is difficult. Like that's why we, that's why we push community at Generation so much. As we're living this mission, as we're living the mission of Jesus among the lives that God has planted us around, we're going to get discouraged. We're going to get frustrated. We're going to be disappointed. And the opportunity to come together with other people who believe and value what we believe and value to build each other up as we go back out to live this message, to be light in a dark world. And Paul says, I want to come to encourage you, but understand this, when I show up, I'm going to be pretty discouraged too. And I want us to encourage one another. Then in verse 13, he says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit, just as I have seen among other Gentiles. He's telling the Romans, my lack of presence isn't a sign of disinterest or a lack of concern. He says, I want to be there, but there's something that's preventing me from, from, from being there. And the way Romans 1 is written, you get the sense that maybe the Romans 
had a bit of a chip on their shoulder toward Paul that he had been all over Asia Minor, but he'd never come to see what was happening in Rome. And so he's, he's saying over and over again, it's not that I don't want to be there. I just have been able to get there to this point. And so he says, I want to show up to encourage and to evangelize with you. He says, God is working and I want to be a part of it. When I read this passage, I, I often think back to uh, how generation started and, and where we started and why we started in Clayton. Like when we first started talking about planting a church, Clayton was never even on the radar screen for me. I call it ABC, anywhere but Clayton. And I remember talking to Jimmy, my pastor, and him saying, what about Clayton? And I'm like, no, it's, it's not cool. It's not trendy. Like it's not the sexy place to be. Like nobody, like, you know, even, like nobody even goes through Clayton. Like it's, like it's just, it's like, what, like why would I do that? And then I just started to pray similar to what Paul is talking about here. It's an old Rick Warren prayer. God, where are you making waves? Where are you working? Because that's where I want to be. And as I started to pray that, as we started to pray that, what we see today, all of that was, was birthed and began to, to form just by simply saying, God, where are you active? Where are you working? That's what I want to be a part of. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, absolutely, I want to get to Rome. Like God's moving in a powerful way. The church is flourishing and growing. Of course I want to be there. It almost sounds like in, like in Rome, like you just walk up to a stranger and they're like coming up to you going, sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's like, yes, I want to be a part of that. Like, I don't want to be a part of all these conversations where I'm imploring and challenging and trying to pull people toward Jesus. I want to show up where they're like open-handed, ready to receive it. He says, of course I want to be there. Verse 14, he says, for I have a great sense of obligation to both to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and uneducated alike. So I'm eager to come to you in Rome too to preach the good news. He said, I have an obligation. The word obligation means to be indebted. What Paul's saying is in light of what I've experienced because of the gospel, I am indebted. I am obligated to help other people who are far from God come to a meaningful encounter with the gospel. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, it is your responsibility, it is my responsibility, it is our obligation to help people who are far from God come to a meaningful encounter with the gospel. Churches tried to simplify it. We've tried to make it out like it's the job of the pastors and the job of the staff. Man, if the church at, if the Christians at Rome waited till an apostle showed up to start a church at Rome, that one may have never started. We've got to accept the responsibility to see it as a sense of obligation. Paul gets specific about his obligation. He says, I've got an obligation, speaking of the Gentile world, but he says to the civilized and to the rest of the world, to the educated and the uneducated. Now, the Romans were known to feel like they were the best. Like Romans knew they were the best. They viewed themselves as civilized maybe viewed everyone else as uncivilized. They were the educated. Everyone else was the uneducated. They kind of walked around with this posture of, we're better than you, you know it, and we know it too. Kind of reminds me of Texans. Like, do we have any real, if you're a real Texan, you're like, yes, that's true. Any real Texans in here? Okay, yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a couple, yeah, like they're proud, right? Like, like Texans, I was just in Texas this past week, and when they say everything's bigger in Texas, it's true. The capital in Austin is higher than the U.S. capital. Like you see this, you see this lived out. And Texans who are true Texans, 
like they have that sense that like, man, God bless Texas. Like forget America, God bless Texas. George W. Bush said this one time. He said, some folks look at me and see a certain swagger, which is what te- in Texas we call walking. Like that's just, that's just how it is. And Texans kind of have that posture sometimes of we're better than you and we know it and you know it too. And that's how the Romans were. The Romans had this mentality with Paul of like, we're the best thing on earth. Why in the world would you not want to come here? Like Ephesus, Philippi, like good luck, you're missing out on Rome. And Paul reminds them that his obligation to the Gentiles is both the civilized and the uncivilized. He clarifies on multiple multiple occasions that his responsibility was to Gentiles everywhere, which was the majority of the world outside of Rome. But he says, I'm obligated to share the gospel. That mentality of we're better than everyone else had filtered down into the church. So Paul is propping up the gospel. Yes, even you Romans need the gospel. I'm obligated to share with anyone I can. And then in verse 16 and 17, this is the foundation of the series of the entire book. He says, for I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. The entire 16 chapters of Romans is built on this foundation. Like if you think in terms of a tree, the book of Romans is a tree, this is the trunk. Like from it, all of the things that Paul is gonna teach us, all the things that he's gonna show us are all these branches that shoot off of the, off of the trunk of the, of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. This is where it all flows from. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. It doesn't have power. It doesn't bring power. The gospel is power. The gospel is the power of God on display, transforming everything. The Romans were obsessed with power. In fact, Paul was probably really strategic in using this word. They were known to be the dominant rule of this time and they would flaunt their power. And Paul says, you guys, have, you guys haven't seen anything. You wanna experience real power? Look no further than the person and work of Jesus. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. That's where the power is directed towards. That no greater display of power has ever been seen than to defeat an invisible enemy like sin and to render it powerless. Verse 17, he says, this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. The gospel does what nothing 
else, what no power in this world can do, brings reconciliation between us and God. I mean, think of the great military powers of the history of the world. Think of the great politicians, the history in this nation. We celebrate them. We learn about them. But could they do anything to reconcile us back to God? Of course not. So Paul says, you haven't seen power until you've seen the power of God unto salvation. Salvation shows us how to have a right standing in the eyes of God. The gospel shows us how to be right with God, which is something every one of us is searching for. That's what the word righteousness means. We sang about it earlier in one of the songs. Righteousness is to have a perfect right standing in the eyes of God. And just like we want the approval of our parents, our spouse, our friends, we want the approval of the people that do like us. And and sometimes we struggle because someone that doesn't like us doesn't like us. And so we try to work hard to get their approval. And we desire the approval of God. We're wired that way. We're going to look at it next weekend as more in depth. But we want righteousness. And the good news for every one of us today is that because of Jesus, we have it. Romans 3.25 says, God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. That sin created the separation between us and God. That the only thing in all of, of creation that could separate us from a loving God, a God who loved us, created us in love, to have community with us. The only thing that could separate us was sin. And God, who is perfect, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, became the offering of sin for us so that we could have that right standing in the eyes of God so that we could be reconciled. Today, we don't have to strive to get to where God is. We don't have to strive to become like God. Jesus gave his life and accomplished it for us. And the only thing we do is believe. And this morning, do you believe that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for your sins? That's the question. Do you believe that to be true? Maybe you push back and say, but I've got some other questions. I'm sure you do. I've got other questions. But in this moment, can you answer that question? Do you believe that to be true? Romans 10 says, if we believe that to be true and we confess with our mouth, we tell God in our own words, I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I put my faith in him and him alone to reconcile me back to you says that we'll be saved. Because of sin, we're eternally, we're sentenced to eternally be separated from God. And because of the person work of Jesus, when we put our faith and trust in him, we are eternally reconciled to him. That's the gospel, as simple as you can describe it. But it doesn't end there. 
It overflows into every day and every area of our life as we choose to surrender control of all of our life to Jesus. But the gospel isn't just something we said yes to for eternity, something we say yes to every day as it sustains us and as it changes us and as it's making us more like Jesus. And this is the foundation of the book. Everything that's going to be said from here, you could read it and talk about it and go, okay, now let's go all the way back to what he said in 1, 16 and 17. And Paul is going to make the case that we all need the gospel. The gospel is for everyone and that no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. Would you bow your heads with me? And would you stand? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Jesus, we believe that to be true. We believe that you lived, you died, you were buried, and you rose again to reconcile us back to God, to seal our eternal destiny, to free us from the penalty of sin, Holy Spirit, you're living within us to give us the strength we need to walk in victory because we're freed from the power of sin. As we start this journey, digging into some hard things in Romans, there are some weeks we're going to leave happy, there's some weeks we're going to leave convicted. There's some weeks half of the room are going to be happy and the other are going to be mad. And then there's going to be some weeks coming up. Everybody's going to be mad. And Holy Spirit, that's, that's where you're doing the work in us. You're showing us the things that we don't like. You're showing us what is broken and what it looks like to become more like Jesus. So we surrender to that now. Jesus, you are our savior. You are the master. We are unashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus, I pray all of this in your name.